Okay, quiet on the set, everybody. Stand by. Roll camera. Speed. Roll sound. Speed. Market. And cue talent. Hello and welcome to another episode of This Week in Production. I'm your host, Art Aldridge, and I have two guests with me today. One in the podcast studio, Christian Schlick, and on the phone, Tristan Stafford. On the phone, Tristan <laughs> Stafford. You two have just completed uh, principal photography on an independent feature, and we're going to talk about it a little bit. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Just uh, we'll go one at a time. Uh, Christian, just give us a little, give the audience a little background on yourself. All right, sure. Uh, my name is Christian Schlicht. I'm a 26-year-old filmmaker, born and raised in New York. I now live in New York City for the last three years. Um, I did an undergrad in new media at Purchase College, State University of New York. Um, I've been freelancing as an independent videographer, filmmaker, AC for the last three years. Tristan, uh, introduce yourself, please. Cool. Uh, my name is Tristan. I am from upstate New York and uh, from a tiny town in upstate. And uh, I started making movies back when I was probably 14. And then uh, I went to college for screenwriting and cinema studies. After graduation, I started working as a freelance editor, um, doing, you know, paying my bills primarily through editing and video editing for whether it be, you know, promotional documentaries or short clips, things like that. And then, uh, yeah, that kind of leads us to here where this is sort of my next step feature. Okay, so you, you met it at SUNY Purchase and you've collaborated on a few different things outside of class. And this most recent project, as I understand it, is an independent film. And just give us a overview. I guess, Tristan, you're the writer of this, maybe the brainchild of this film. So just give us a high-level overview of what the, the film is about. So what the film is about, three friends, they are about, you know, they're similar age to me. They're about 23, 24, right around there. And uh, they haven't really seen each other in a little while. And so they uh, go on this beach vacation to a town they used to go to, but they realize that everything is different and changed and not as good as it used to be. And, you know, while they're there, they realize that, you know, their lives aren't great in the real world and they're in a vacation town where nobody knows who they are. So they can lie and pretend to be entirely different new people and hold schemes and see how eventful they can really make their trip together. I think the, the final draft that we ended up shooting with was about 106 pages, but I do know that we end up, you know, cutting things both in post and on set. But I do know that the actual printed draft, the final one is about 106 pages. Okay. I don't know for you. I, I talk to friends who are writers and they write lots of things and they don't all make you know, the cut to make a, a movie, like make the commitment to make a movie. So at what point in writing this movie did you make the commitment that said, I'm going to make this, I'm going to shoot it, I'm going to edit it, and I'm going to deliver it? Yeah, I, I do that a lot. I, I tend to write down a bunch of stuff, and sometimes it gets to the script form, and then I'm like, I don't, it's not going to happen. You know, I've got a couple scripts like that already. But I would say from the outset there was something that sort of tickled me a little bit about this movie um there was a lull for maybe six or eight months where i didn't really know what to do i had this idea in the back of my head i, I this is when i i think i just graduated college at that point and um you know a few months go past and there's this weird 
apathy you get after, you know, going from like I went straight from high school to college. So, you know, however many years that is in the educational system, the minute that that's taken away from you, you kind of feel lost and confused. And like you're like, well, I don't have that structure anymore. And so this movie was already formed by the time that happened. But because I was going through such a weird, you know, severe case of being apathetic towards a lot of things, I was like, it doesn't need to be made. But, you know, I sort of got out of my rut and that was sort of this, you know, shiny, you know, piece of writing that I had that I always really liked that I thought was really lovely. And, you know, I think that's really just what it was. It, it helped me, you know, get out of this really weird rut I was in and I knew I needed to make it because of that. Okay, so so you you finished the draft. At what point, Christian, do you see a script? Like, are you are you getting updates about this along the way? Or are you only hearing about it when it's close to being finished in terms of writing? I mean, I, I knew being friends with Adam and Tristan that they were up in Maine, like, writing. But I knew that there was, like, something in the works. It was just like, all right, like, that's in the atmosphere, like Stephen put in. Um, and I guess, you know, about a year ago, a draft came forward. It was like maybe the third or fourth to the final. It was a completely different film than it was. No, I'm um, set. That's for sure. Um, and he, he was like, Hey, would, would you want to DP this? And I was like, absolutely. When I did a film in my, and I'm going to sound old, but in my day, you had to talk <laughs> about real money. You had to talk about minimum fifty, hundred thousand dollars to get equipment, to get things that you needed to make a film like right are you guys talking at this stage about real dollars are you just figuring hey we'll do it we'll find a way to do it and we'll just do it for whatever we can well i know in the past tristan and i know you know more about our our financial aspect of our projects in the past being most a producer and director as well but i know on this film you were like hey i want to get this one funded i don't want this to be a micro budget film yeah i want to get a substantial budget and I remember thinking, like, no, hey, I, I, I didn't want this that. to be a zero dollar budget film. I was cool with it being micro budget, but I didn't want to do it for no money. I was overdoing that. You know, I needed to find a way just to be able to feed people for Christ's sakes. You know, that was kind of nice. So what was your approach to that? Because so, so you didn't self fund this, I'm assuming. Sort of. It was, it was done in a weird way. It was kind of like, uh, I don't know, just to give a small you know, backstory about it. My uh, doing doing freelance editing sort of led me to meeting, you know, a handful of people, you know, a few of which have become very close friends of mine and, you know, colleagues. And, you know, they're always trying to make work and trying to make these things happen. And one of them was our executive producer, Matt Walton. And I, I you know, shot him a text and I was like, hey, man, give me a call. I've got a I got an interesting thing for you. And, uh, you know, he, he's always trying to make things. So he jumped right on the call within you know probably 20 minutes. And I said, I think I can make this movie for $10,000. And his response was just, how about 20? And I thought that really? was really interesting. You know, I thought, cause at this point we had been working together for a little while and, you know, he'd seen some of my writing. He, he'd volunteered to sort of, you know, help put my own, like we had a short film that I really wanted to put together. I never had the time to, but you know, he was very much an advocate for me with that. Um, so there was something that he saw both in me and, you know, in my occasional mumblings about the project and things like that, that he was like, you know, I think we can make that happen. Um, so, you know, that ended up becoming our primary source, I think actually our only source of funding for this movie. So it was a little bit, it wasn't self-funded in terms of I was the one who funded it, but it was self-funded in that 
one of you know my close friends and working partners um, gave the entire budget out of pocket, essentially. You know you have $20,000. I don't know anything about the script. I don't know how you broke it down. I don't know how many locations. I don't know what fees were involved. But like, was 20000 enough to do it? Or did you ask people to do things for free or for deferment? I end up calling our associate producer slash producer. I, I came to him and I, his name is James. And I told him, hey, man, I hate money. I don't know how to make I don't know how to I, I've got money. I don't know what to do with it, though. Can you help me make it? Um, and can you help me fit it into this budget? And he said, yes, absolutely. And so he did it. Um, people, we, we did have to call in a lot of favors. Um, you know, that's just sort of the way it works when you're doing stuff for, you know, you know, we can, we can produce a lot of cool stuff for, you know, $20,000, but it's still, there are these weird fees you don't really expect to pop up. Like we like had to rent a beach because it was the off season and we had to rent the entire beach for, what was it like six hours? And it didn't cost that much money. It was, it was a private beach and it was the off season. That's why it was so inexpensive, I guess, but it was, that was a weird one. And I was like, all right, I guess I just didn't think about, you know, the seasonal change and us not being able to be there for free and just run and gun it. But that ended up lending itself well, because then we could set up, you know, giant flags and scrims and, you know, we could, we could bounce some stuff and you know, we could, we could really go in on the production and do what we can and take our time with it. So that was really nice. Um, that's a benefit of having a little bit of money, but we ended up shooting this whole thing in what was it like 14 days something like yeah, that something maybe, or, 14 17 and 14 days for 106 page script is not a lot of time <laughs> no it's ridiculous it was ridiculous <laughs> but but you compressed it due to budget and time constraints and things like that we we compressed the days yes but we didn't have to really make too many alterations to the scripts um i don't know if this is something that you know, I, I worked really hard to be pretty good at writing scripts for no money, you know, really utilizing what I have and, you know, knowing the weird, quirky, stupid things that exist, unfortunately, states away. But, you know, if, if it states away and we've got a little bit of money, we can get there and do it, you know, such as, you know, we, the house that I started writing the script at in Maine became, you know, a, a big set piece. And in the original script, it was an even bigger set piece. But you know, and it turned out to still remain, you know, a, a center of the film. So Christian, you get the script, you know that you're going to DP it. What, what is your thought process for determining what equipment you need, what format you're going to shoot? We're going to, I want to get all the details about, you know, that part of it. Right. So I think the first thing going into it was I kind of lit up like a kid, you know, or what's it called the deer in the headlights because in the past we've done things for so little just because of the passion of it um and then when i saw a, you know a dollar figure i said well what can we get with this um so i know the first thing was camera department you know and with lights and lingering to a close second so i, I i'm a camera technician by day and uh we sell secondhand gear and um i was able to get a good deal on a black magic ursa mini 4k now i'm like i'm similar to you in the fashion that I love ProRes. Even though I wasn't going to be the editor of this, I just enjoy handing off ProRes to the editor because I know that it's an efficient, you know, codec to work in. Um, so Tristan's pretty familiar with the Apple ProRes flavors as well. And I think it was established pretty early on that this was going to be shot in 422. Um, and then anything else that was like needed for... Now, did you shoot 4K? Yeah, so we did end up going F4K 422 ProRes okay. file. 
um, for like, you know, with the Ursa Mini, with the Ursa Mini 4K EF okay. mount. EF mount. Yep. And then the second to that came, well, what glass do we like? And in the past, we've done a lot of, you know, like little, maybe like commercial spots with Panasonic GH5s. And we've used the Canon um, 16 to 35, 24 to 70 L2 glass. And you Canon have, glass. Yeah, the Canon L2 yeah. glass. And it has a wide range of focal lengths. And well, the, you you really wanted cine lenses. Yeah. You really, really were pushing for that. But I knew that if we were trying to get this done in, you know, 14 days, in two weeks, that, you know, I think we might be able to sort of juggle a lot of different things if we had, you know, that L glass. Tristan, you were lobbying for zoom lenses instead of primes? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm always doing that. The last movie we did, it was... Uh, <laughs> there's zoom in every other shot you know maybe every single shot i i personally love zooms and so i that 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 is a holdover that is definitely a vestigial holdover from a kind of movie that we didn't make this time but i knew that you could save time doing it and i knew that that glass was excellent so i'm just curious as the dp mm-hmm. and tristan as the basically the the ep <laughs> yeah. how much pushback do you give against creative decisions that the writer is making in the camera department well the writer or the director <laughs> well <laughs> either way um you were pissed yeah i was upset at first because i was because i you know not being a someone who has a history of producing i looked at twenty thousand dollars and said i can go play with this you know a lot of that budget had to be allocated for other things right. that were more important than right ultimately more important than what glass we're going to be using so do i think the quality suffered not to the common eye. Um, but as a creative, you felt like... Yeah, I felt a little shortchanged at first. Yeah. Until I started seeing some of the footage. Because we, we did a lot of um, tech scouting where we brought the Ursa up with the glass and did, you know, this filter and this setting and, you know, this bit rate, this, you know, codec. And uh, I think ultimately it was like, yeah, what we... So what, did you, what was the, the winning cocktail as far as... You know, lens and recording codec and bitrate. Yeah, so the Ursa Mini shoots on a CFast cards. So the puzzle fell together with the Ursa Mini 4K, the Canon, the two, the set of Canon glass, so the 24 to 70 and the 1635 L2, um, and uh, like a matte box and some um, some Tiffin filters. And then we realized again we had to shell out for the CFast cards. And being someone that shoots... Because you bought the camera, but you didn't buy any cards? Not at first. I knew okay. it was going to come. I did know all it right. shot on CFast. It wasn't like a, oh, wait, what does this camera shoot on? It was, all right, we have to buy CFast down the road. And I like briefly looked into it. And then once I came to time to purchase some cards, I realized... Yeah, Big money. Yeah, like $550 for like a 256 gig. Now, now I'm going to just interject a little history here. All right. Okay. Oh, boy. I was I was working as a consultant for Panasonic. The first tapeless HD palm quarter mm-hmm. came out, and the four gigabyte card was two thousand dollars. <laughs> okay, two grand for a four gigabyte solid state memory card. Then, of course, after the first year, the price dropped to like a thousand, and then eight hundred, and then four hundred, and yeah. then. You know, we know where we are now. So I, I yeah. understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. The shock of a new format and yeah. CFast at that point was still relatively new. Right. So the prices were high. But mm-hmm. yes, you do get yeah. sticker shock when you go, oh, not only yeah. do we need 
see fast cards, but we need like three of them. Yeah. So that's actually a funny story about three of them. Um, at first, we were looking into buying them from my company, which is a secondhand reseller. And uh, I was kind of against buying secondhand media because you don't know where it's been. You don't know how it's been treated. And I feel that media is the most, you know, important it's piece your of the puzzle. Negative. Yeah, that's, it's your negative. That is the movie, you it know, is, yeah. Yeah, and that's like the one place you don't want to shortcut. So I did push him into purchasing brand new CF car, CFAST cards, excuse me. And uh, we picked up one 256. Well, we also were, you know, on the days that we had a DIT, we were offloading, you know, as fast as we could. Um, so sometimes, you know, our, our card swap would be, you know, uh, the turnover would be weird for cards sometimes, especially on the beach. I remember that was weird. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask you about that because you bring up an interesting um, point about the crew size. So, so how, yeah. how big was your crew? I would say somewhere around 12. 12 people. Yeah, I think like yeah. 12 to 15. Yeah. yeah. Now, it sounds like the DIT, though, was not part of every location. Ship. Right. So we shot a lot on weekdays and being that, you know, we're all most of us work nine to fives. It was hard for our DIT to get off. So he was only on 99% of the time on weekend shoots. Okay. And, uh, you know, so that the days that he were there, I, I would feel basically every department felt the difference of workflow. Okay. So now I know how critical the DIT is on my jobs. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't imagine doing a job without the DIT. So what was the onset workflow? With the DIT, with the DIT and, and without. Okay. So days that we had the DIT, we'd set up similar station to uh, what you had. We had one master drive, one backup drive. We had all uh, six terabyte drives. We didn't rate any of them. We were thinking about it at first because he's very uh, like drive, sa drive savvy. Um, and he tried to push us in that direction, but it just wasn't at the time. We were just like, this is all right for what we need. Um, so days like that, um, we had a whole DIT Pelican. Uh, he'd get it first thing on set. Um, he'd format all the cards, lay out his spread with all his drives and, and off um, card readers. Um, and then he'd get ShotPut Pro, which we use up. And uh, so the, you know, the shooting would commence. And I would say usually we'd start with the 256 CFast. First card big. Yeah. Um, mostly, though, with our days, it would come to... We're in between, here's the end of the scene, hand off the 256. Because although we were shooting in ProRes 422 and 4K, 256 gave us about an hour of rec time. You know, a little bit of time would go by, but then usually by the time we filled up the next card, he'd have that one offloaded and backed up. Now, were you guys using a script super? I, th I believe the AD, right? The AD was kind of like the super, uh, the script soup. Yeah, yeah. Adam did that a lot. I mean, we're, I, I'm just curious, were you doing, because nowadays with metadata, you can do a lot with the script and the script supervisor and getting into post. Were you doing any sort of advanced notations no. electronically or? I mean, uh, in, uh, in camera, we did it. Um, I, favorite takes I bitched and stuff. every time you did it, Christian. I was so like, Christian, stop. It's going to take too long. And you're like, yeah, two minutes later, it's done. And I'm like, come on. It's not, it's not as Tristan as an editor hasn't been familiarized or nor really likes um metadata i'm a lazy editor i mean i i am such a lazy editor i'm i'm very like all right i'll look at all the takes and 
I don't know. I never really messed with metadata too much. And I know I probably would benefit from it, but being that I'm so stuck in my ways, I'm like, yeah. So you shot for 14 days, Ursa Mini, yep. so, 4K. Yeah. Did you run into any technical hurdles? Oh. <laughs> oh. Did we? Um, we also swapped to the 4.6K, though, remember? Like after like, the, the first day. We hired a grip and we rented his whole kit for the whole project. His truck. His yeah. Whole bit. Yeah. It was a minivan. Yeah. But, um, him and I got very close before the project started. So before day one of production, you know, I texted him. I'm like, Hey, let's do pre-pro setup. I'll come, I'll crash at your house and we'll shut all this set together. He's like, all right, absolutely. So I got to his house at about 4 PM the night before our first day of rolling. We build the whole camera. So that's the black magic Ursa mini 4k the Canon glass, the map box, you know, um, maybe a stop of ND or Pola just to, try, you know, experiment and see how, what works with what. He was supplying the audio gear as well. We're about two, three hours in, you know, I'm testing cards and lenses and it comes time to set up the audio wireless receiver onto the camera because our, our goal idea was to record a separate track into his um, sound devices kit. And then also wirelessly transmit to camera and recording camera. Just so we had it. Yeah, double system sound. Yeah. And then with one channel of uh, reference audio from the camera. After like 20 minutes of trying different settings on the next pre, our, both of our XLR ports into camera just went like shorted out. You like, mean like no audio? Like just... <laughs> like just hiss. His hiss. Oh my God. Like, there was no voice w over the hiss. Wow. There was nothing but just hiss. <laughs> nothing happened except it just cut out. It just, it, it was like working. Like, we had monitor uh, cans on and we were just listening and it just went static. Wow. So, me and knowing where we were in the night and Tristan pretty much being ready for bed at this point, I remember like texting him, like, he's like, I'm going to go to bed. Like, I'll talk to you later. I just like, <laughs> my heart dropped. And I remember being like, this is not project stopper but it's not good um well i mean it, it might be a project stopper if you've got no audio coming yeah so to camera we looked at each other and i said what can we do and it was like how can we get to set and record tomorrow and i remember just being like we have to record you know externally and and sync it in post like or we're not shooting if he doesn't want to do that i don't did, did we tell you that night no dude you guys told me like a week later <laughs> yeah, a week later, oh, but there was only two, I was so pissed. There was now, only I was, two I was days. only mad because he didn't tell me for like a week, and then I was like, "Oh, it doesn't matter. We're, we have everything. It's fine." There's two days <laughs> that week. There's only two days of production. However, all right, all right, all right. So, I, being that I work at the company where we got the camera, I went right to the returns manager, and I was like, "Listen, this is not cool. Like, I need you need to do something about this." So we didn't have any other Ursa Mini 4Ks in stock. So I'm like, well, what's the next best thing? He's like, oh, I have an Ursa Mini 4.6K for you. And I'm like, that's more my speed. That's what I'm talking about. So I contact our pricing department and I'm like, hey, listen, like, I need a price with my discount on this. And it was super affordable. So I'm like, hey, like, can you, can you see why? Can we step it up to a 4.6K? And they're like, sure. So we, we made the trade. And now we had a 4.6K first generation. Right. Now, I'm not too familiar with the Blackmagic cameras, but is that going from a newer camera to an older camera? or No. 
it, it's a, an older to a newer camera, and the four point six K is leaps ahead of the four K. It okay. is crazy yeah. how much better that camera is. And it was on the newer firmware too. So when we got it, we were like, "Oh, this is okay." Great. So you upgraded the camera at the last last like moment like the, the, after the first weekend of production. Yeah, and uh, it's not that. So being that it's the same, basically the same user interface, it was like. We didn't really change cameras. We just upgraded right, sensor understood, size. Understood. And this this one had working audio. Working audio had it has the same yeah. same thing. Two channel input. Um, XLR. Internal ND. Oh, it was excellent. Yeah, oh, I it loved had it. Internal ND. Oh, the other one didn't have no, internal ND. It had okay. um, nope. it had a three inch monitor versus a five inch built in monitor, and then it also had SD card slots. So which we have plenty of high speed SD right. cards. Okay. Instead of CFast. Yeah. So it oh. also has CFast. Oh, okay. You still use the CFast primarily, though. Got it. Mm -hmm. You overcame an audio hurdle. Any other hurdles? So we're a couple weeks into production, and um, we uh, we made a vital mistake where we left one of the the CFast reader back at one of the um, like pre-production houses, and we got to set, and we didn't have a way. We weren't sure if the media, we had like a rough night. It was like a late night the night before we last shot. And we weren't sure if the CFAST card was offloaded. But being that that was our negative, we weren't prepared to off to just format that card and continue with the day. Right. And this, unfortunately, was one of the days that our DIT was not there. So I was acting DIT along with. Two DP, hats. Yeah. Okay. Along with DPing the film and having everything in place to shoot. So I, I started to troubleshoot. And I said, well, what can I do to continue again to shoot? try to work past this efficiently. And I said, oh, I, I have a Blackmagic uh, Video Assist 7-inch 4K. I said, that's perfect. It records ProRes, so it's everything that I need outside of the camera. And the Video Assist, that's a monitor. Yeah, that's a recorder. yeah it's a 7-inch monitor, yep. recorder. I remember being like, all right, well, I've never used this before, but it's Blackmagic, so I have an advantage here. It's not a brand I'm unfamiliar with, and it's not SSD, so it's, like we don't, it's not anything we don't have on hand. It was just two SD card slots. Like I set up my format for codec and everything that I wanted, and it came time to, time to shoot. I told Tristan, he's like, "We'll work around it. You know, that's fine with me. Let's go ahead." Because we were also burning daylight. Um, so we started, you know, doing a couple takes, and uh, it was. I remember it was shoulder rig takes. It wasn't static on sticks. Okay. And I use focus peaking. Um, now I, I would like to blame it on my flusteredness if i can call, use that word <laughs> but being that i was unexperienced with recording strictly onto exterior external recorders recorders i left focus speaking on the output out output oh. of the camera i will never forget when we're watching playback and i'm like hey man i think why is peaking on in this clip you're like, oh, it's just, it just does that. <laughs> okay, bro, yeah. that sounds good. Like we had taken a in-between cuts. <laughs> wait, wait, but yeah, but hold on. Let, let, let's back up a minute. So so you're recording like you normally are, but externally. You've got peaking on, but you think it's just in the camera, but it's really in the output. Right, because, yeah. And you're recording your, your negative with peaking on the output. Correct. And but, but you don't know it. You don't know it yeah, right. until when? Um, so it was also, I, I'm already telling the story, so I might as well. It was also the, the status indicator. So it was like my last name, the C number, the codec. So you had all the output options yeah, turned the on the output. Onto the top third and lower third. It was actually only like that for two of those, like, you know, 10 clips that we had. All right. So 
I think we had a company move that day about halfway through the day, maybe three quarters. And uh, the DIT joined us on set later that day. And he comes on a set. He's like, well, where are the drives and where are the, the cards so I can offload? I'm like, here, here's what we did. I explained him the situation. He brought us a card reader. So we had our full kit back in place. And uh, we're like 10 minutes out from rolling at the first, the next location. And he comes down. He's like, hey, like, can you can I talk to you? And I'm like, sure. So like, we go upstairs. And he's like, um, yes, Peking's on this footage or, or something. Like he didn't really know himself because he's, He's a photographer by nature, but he's a DIT by by us. And I'm like, wait a minute. And I, I'm like, let me see this. So I hop him out of his chair and I'm like going through clip by clip from where we just shot. And there's like red focus peeking on everything. And like You must have died. I can I can't even like kind of refeel the feeling. It was so intense because I had like a crew of like 10 people downstairs that I just virtually let down. And he, was, he told you, he told you at the end of the day, right? Like at the, it, the end of yeah, it was no, he it was at the beginning of the the next lo, the next location. And oh, okay. So, but I knew we have to shoot now. I have my full kit here. I can properly work. So I didn't want to tell the director, the AD, or the producer because I knew that that would damper their productivity on this next scene. So we wrapped, and I pulled Tristan aside, and I was like. I think I actually might have gotten a little choked off because, you know, you put your heart and soul into these projects, you know, $50,000 budget or 5,000, 500 bucks. It doesn't matter. You know, you still, you still, you know, being the creatives we are, we, we love what we do and we invest that into our work. And I think that like knowing I made such a vital mistake, I, I just like telling him for the first time, I just like kind of was like, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I remember like, I remember just saying like, I'm so sorry. And I remember just seeing like the look of like, I can't even explain it, come over his face and the producer's face. I, I mean, well, l- luckily though, the red chroma was so specific that I actually was able to key like 90% of it out. Wow. So like, it's not the end of the world. And if you slap a little bit of fake 35 mil grain on there, you don't even notice it. Wow. So. Okay. It, it's it's not the end of the world. Surprisingly, I think it's I had it pretty on low peaking. I think that yeah, was it, was, it wasn't everywhere. It wasn't okay. high. Yeah. Or All right. Any other adventures in production? There were a couple of times where I think there was actually only like one, one or two times where you weren't able to be there, and Neil, our our our, our grip, had to also. Um, like either op camera or op sound, or at one time, I think he did both. Um, and these were times where we were doing a lot of running gun stuff. So we didn't really like much of it. We just sort of went out and about and did what we had. Um, so we had some flexibility, but it was definitely weird to have, you know, a, a handful of people wear essentially 10 different hats. And that was kind of, that was kind of a, a interesting experience to do that. I'm curious about the the post production and the editorial process and Tristan since you're the writer and the editor. So what was like was there dailies? Was there did you review all the footage after each shoot? Mostly after, after each yeah, location. Yeah, mostly, yeah. I not not each location, but definitely either dailies or like every other day I'd check out footage. Um were they making but, the proxies you know, for you? Were were you watching just the, the camera neg off the hard drive. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it was just sort of like after all the day is done and, you know, I'm, I'm at home and I, I would, you know, just make sure I have everything, see what, see if uh, our DIT left any notes and look at some clips. Um, never. And what are you cutting on? Uh, I cut on Premiere. You're cutting on Adobe Premiere on a Mac or on a PC? Mac. Mac. What kind of yep. Mac? And then uh, a MacBook Pro, I don't know, 2016, I think. But I'm, I'm actually getting a 15-inch MacBook external external monitor as well or no? No, just straight into the laptop. Very basic MacBook Pro. I mean. And are you taking the, the set um, RAIDs? And copying to a, a, a edit drive, or what's your what's your process with the footage? Well, so we would always have like our main and then our backup, and so I would you know to do like a dailies and things like that. If I was out and about, it would always be off the backup drive. Um, I wouldn't really mess with the main drive. But now that I am cutting, I'm cutting directly off of the main drive. Oh, so you didn't make a copy again? You're actually working off the main drive with only the backup drive as your edit source. Correct. We have four drives in total. Um, two drives are our main drives. We couldn't fit the entire movie onto one. Um, and then two drives are our backup drives. So you're watching dailies and are you feeling like you're getting the coverage you need? Are you making notes like, oh, I need a, a reshoot on this or we didn't get that? Or like, I mean, it's, it's a unique position as the writer and as the editor. So like how how much are you worrying about staying true to the script versus the reality of production, which is oh, we're out of money, we're out of days? I am always a very practical person. I when I'm done with the script, I'm fully aware that that whole thing is gonna get thrown in a garbage fire. Um and that's fine. Um because when you're on set and when you're directing and when you see the things that, you know, the people are saying the way in which they're acting and performing, you know, how excellent things can be when you don't really go by the books, when you just say, Hey, this is how the scene is going to go. And you throw an audible in there mid take, you know, Hey, try this, do this. And then suddenly the scene that was three pages has become, you know, you cut a lot of that dialogue. So now it's become a page and, but it's snappier, it's sharper, you know, you know, I find that, you can only write so much. It's really, if the more collaborative a project is, I find the better that the result is. So when you see actors on set doing things that you hadn't even thought of as you're writing this thing, it sort of becomes a beast of its own. It becomes something you never imagined. And so I kind of take that approach to the edit as well, where when I'm watching it and if the timing doesn't really play out, um, you know, I will, I will blatantly cut, you know, two, three pages worth of the script just to be like, all right, this is snappier. This makes sense. I didn't need that information. Right. Now I may, I may have missed this. Were you directing as well? Or did you have a separate director? Oh, I was directing as well. You yes. were. So you wrote it, yes. you directed it and you're editing it. Exactly. So yep. you're, you're basically wearing all the creative hats except for the technical side. Yeah. I, um, I let my AD and my producers sort of give, give me a lot of, Hey, this should happen. Hey, you're going to forget this. Specifically, I made uh, my AD um, remember all of the silly little, like I would call an audible to him and I would say, we need to get an insert of this and to write it down. And he would write it down and tell me right before we're about to wrap that, hey, we need to grab an insert of somebody putting down a wallet or somebody, you know, taking some money out of their pocket, um, things like that. So really a lot of, yeah, I, I would say that that's, that is very true. Um, but, you know, in doing that, I'm able to sort of, I don't know, make this sort of dance of, of if I don't make this happen here, 
I can make it happen over there. Or, you know, I know I don't need one good take. I need four good take. I need four average takes with, with, you know, it, at least during one of those takes, I need one beat to be exactly the way it was written. And then the next take, you can throw that out the window, do something different, but give me uh, the beat that you missed before. Give that to me as it's written. Um, so it's really, I don't need a perfect take that. That was kind of a, a lovely thing about it. Right. And are you, are you feeling like as you're watching dailies after a day of shooting or after a week of shooting, like, are you feeling like, Oh wow, this is visually what I had in mind when I wrote it, or are you feeling like there's some separation or what's that, that synergy between the shooting and the script? Like, I would say while we're shooting, it always feels wonderful. It always feels so great to get the shot. You know, when you write a script and when you step on a set, I find that the visuals are wildly different. When you write a script, you have something very specific in mind. When you step on the set and see the set, you know, you are now suddenly your imagination can't be as big as it was. The box is a lot smaller. When we see what we have and when we come up with, you know, the when we adjust our shot list as such and we get the shot that we want, it's it's amazing. And then sometimes you go and look at it in post and you're like, well, it doesn't really fit thematically with the rest of the movie. But that being said, we've had, we almost developed this language just by shooting. You know, we, we developed it. Like, I, I think movies should have their own specific set of cinematic language. Every movie should try to sound and look different than, than, than a movie that came before it. And so we ended up sort of crafting this very interesting look through the movie that we were able to, replicate um day after day um and so when you see that look and you you're you're able to see that one day or or the second day when you see the dailies and stuff you can kind of recreate something similar to that and then toss it together in the edit and you find they automatically look similar and then the shot that you were most excited about on set doesn't match and so you have to figure out a way to edit around it cut it up or leave it as a long take where are you in the in the creative process of this film? I have the first 10 minutes of the movie consecutively cut together as a first cut. Um, and then I have a handful of scenes throughout the film, just with scenes that I thought were very interesting and fun um, cut together as well. So I'm not even close. But at the same time, I also really like to, you know, do mock-ups and do like little tests and cut together you know, I, I am always tossing in temp music and temp sound just to see, or temp music, temp sound, and then temp color grading even. Sometimes I get excited and I say, you know, I wonder how much I can push these colors, or I wonder if I can find something and, and you know, find a color and make it pop and have that be some sort of motif in the scene or things like that. Um, so I don't know, I guess, I guess the process of editing this has sort of been more of a creative explosion as opposed to sort of a long building thing every time i go to edit i do everything i shouldn't do all at one time and then i say that's pretty cool and then i come back to it later one thing one thing that i found when i was i was cutting my friend's uh, indie film that i shot was that if i put a piece of commercial music in knowing that it was just temp music that we would fall in love with that commercial song that we knew we could not clear. And then anything you put in after was a letdown. So I, I really resist that. And I, and I understand that. And I, and I've definitely heard that before, but at the same time, I, I don't know, I'm putting in a lot of silly songs that I don't really think would even fit. And then I'm more surprised when they do. Um, Commercial music. Commercial music, yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm knowing that you can't clear it. Or... I, I'm, I'm not ripping 
you know, radio tunes. I'm ripping movie soundtracks. I'm taking soundtracks from movies that I love or I think are similar and putting snippets of them in scenes that I think are comparable. So right out the gate, I know I'm not going to get that song. And I know that I need to come up with something similar. But the vibe of, you know, I've, I've as I was writing this thing, I, I put together a soundtrack just to sort of listen to as I'm making the thing. And, you know, it gives me a very specific image of it. So I'm using a lot of, you know, those are commercial, commercially licensed songs and, you know, songs that bands are putting out on labels and things like that. Um, I'm, I'm not I'm never putting those directly into the movie, but I'm definitely taking, you know, general movie score from like I've been a big fan of the Napoleon Dynamite score. So I've been tossing that and getting some Muzak in there just to see how funny and funky we can make it. So that way I can actually approach the person who's doing our score and say, here's some weird stuff for you to listen to. Here's the extreme. And then here's one extreme. Here's the other extreme. Figure out how to put them together. I don't know. I, I guess I haven't really fallen too much in love with everything just because I'm already going and knowing that these belong to a property already that I'm in no way I have any interest in actually commandeering. So what is the plan for finishing the film? Is there a time frame? Is there a deadline? And then what are your plans for, for, you know, distribution or screenings or festivals? I think I can have a first cut by February, um, probably without grading. But one of the things I've noticed is that I can't really edit these things. They never feel fully cinematic unless I fill out all of the temp sounds. So I'll, I'll, I'll make temp sounds and put in, you know, steps, you know, people walking on grass, people grabbing things. So it might be missing some of those, but um, I still think I can have that mostly done by February. And then, a final cut by April or May would be ideal. And then that opens us up for summer 2020 to start submitting. Um, and then anytime between then and, you know, I guess the following summer of 2021, that movie is going to be ideally hitting a circuit, um, hitting a festival somewhere. There's a few people that I've been speaking to since, you know, Christian and I made our last movie, which was an improvised feature film. Um, you know, that I, I did a bunch of cold calling. I was like, Hey, watch this, check it out. Maybe you want to buy it essentially. And some people were interested not in buying the movie, but in seeing that what we were going to do next. So I haven't really lost touch with some of those people. And a lot of them happen to work in distribution, which is kind of great. And then our executive producer also works in the industry. He is primarily an actor. However, all of his friends are producers and, you know, a lot of them are actively taking pitch meetings to, you know, distribute this thing and distribute a handful of other projects as well. And ours is in their mix. So um, we're really trying to figure out an end game before we even really start. And I, I do. I don't know what your plans are. We did screen our independent film. I only did one right. feature length independent film in my you know, career as a a DP and editor, but we did screen it once and I did get feedback that I wasn't expecting to get. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I do think it yeah. helped me to tune the cut and sort of learn how the audience reacts to certain things. Right. And so. this movie is very, I really want it to be based upon the audience. You know, I really want this to feel, you know, not necessarily commercial, but I want it to play for the audience more so than I want it to play for me. Um, so yeah, those, those kinds of test screenings, I think I I've thought about, but I've made no plans yet up until I probably start making them in January or February, but I definitely would love to do those test screenings because, you know, 
an audience doesn't get the joke or if an audience doesn't get why something happened. Well, I, I think it's important because you, I mean, you know, you're wearing three very important hats, the writer, yeah. the director, and the editor. And I wore two hats in the film that I um, worked on, which was DP and editor and things that I thought would work visually. I found out didn't always work in the edit. Right. And then things I thought in the edit that worked didn't play well in the audience. Yeah. So I do, I don't want to like edit by jury, but I do think that you have to sort of test your thought process and your, your, you know, uh, visual sense. And it did help me. We went back and we recut and, and we tuned it. And then when you get the best part, when you're sitting in a screening and you get the reaction that you got mm -hmm. and the audience gets the same reaction, that's, a win yeah that's yeah, a big win absolutely so that's the best feeling good luck to you both thank you thanks thank you. for yeah. sharing an hour of your time with me absolutely. yeah man thank you for having us yeah, appreciate and we, it and uh, we look forward to seeing the finished product yeah thank you absolutely all right that was a lot of fun it would be even better if you could add something to the conversation drop me an email at thisweekinproduction at gmail.com or even better Call our new TWIP voice mailbox and leave us a message. 601-564-TWIP. That's 601-564-8947. Also, a reminder that This Week in Production is available on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. So please subscribe to get every episode. Lastly, if you like what you hear, would you mind giving me a rating or a review? I'd appreciate that. Okay, that's a wrap on this week in production. Thanks for listening.